coming up on this week's episode of TechSnap. A common vulnerability is impacting LibreOffice and Firefox, the seven things that make ATM security horrible, and the enterprise-grade software that was completely bypassed with a batch file. Then it's a great batch of your questions, our answers, our rock and roundup, and much, much more on this week's episode of TechSnap. Hi, everyone, and welcome to TechSnap. This is episode 254 of Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly systems network and administration podcast. We stream this episode live on February 18th, 2016. This episode is brought to you by our three fine sponsors, DigitalOcean, Ting, and iX Systems. I'll tell you more about those great sponsors as this year's show goes on. Oh, our live stream, why, that's powered by the incredible Scale Engine over at ScaleEngine.com. My name is Chris, and joining us every single week is our host, the admin, the tech, and the teacher, Mr. Alan Jude. Hello there, Alan. Hello, Chris. Everybody, thanks for watching. So, uh, my master plan of burying my head in the sand and pretending like Rikai's vacation wasn't coming didn't work out, and so now I am struck with editing while Rikai's gone. I'm not panicking. I'm not panicking, Alan, but uh, it's a little scary. It's a little scary. So, I'm hoping you have some good stories this week to distract me from the terrifying doom that awaits me after this week's episode. Do you have something, something to grab my attention this week? Uh, a couple things. Oh, all right, all right. <laughs> <laughs> what about that shirt? Come on, I got to know what the shirt says this week. Oh, yes. Let's it's, see here. It's an old one. E okay, everybody stand back. I know regular expressions. And very cleverly. Sure. Yeah, okay, there you go. Do a little, do a little back demo. Okay. <laughs> I like that, Alan. That's a pretty good shirt. Thank you. Let's see. Thanks for sharing with the class. I every now and then I got to know. Uh, it has a slight problem of there's no one that knows what regular expressions are that doesn't kind of like it, once you know what they are, you pretty much know how to use them. Maybe yeah. not, maybe not all the way, right? Like, but what, as soon as you're familiar with the concept, you're you're familiar enough with it that the shirt's not really funny. <laughs> if you're not, if you don't know what a regular expression is, you're like, Bleh. what? It's still a good, still a good conference shirt yes. or something like that. It's exactly. Still, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, although it's a little bit less because if you go to the conference, it's like, well, nobody here doesn't know regular expressions. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so let's talk about one of our favorite subjects on the show. And it's one of those subjects that reminds me, if instead of doing podcasting, if I just would have gotten to this particular type of cybercrime, I'd probably be way, way rich right now. ATMs, like they're just like, apparently we designed them back in an era when we didn't think a lot of things through. Like what's going on, Alan? Well, in general, uh, an ATM is a computer that dispenses money. <laughs> yeah, that's a great kind of idea right there to begin with. <laughs> yeah. So uh, Kaspersky presents uh, a summarized a list of the seven reasons why ATMs are so easily compromised and uh, are a great way to just, you know, spit money out on the floor. Ah, jackpot, uh, it's jackpot. Yes, they call it jackpotting when you walk up to an ATM and make it just start spitting up money at you. Uh, it's based on a talk they gave at the SAS uh, 2016 conference. Uh, but yes, so they say uh, automated telling or teller machines, uh, which is funny that we still call them that, right? Right. <laughs> Although actually, up here, the at least my bank is very specific about calling it an ABM, an automated banking machine. Really, I've never heard it called an ABM before. Uh, yes, they they always call it that. I think because they didn't want to say that it's replacing the tellers mm. or something. I don't know. Yeah, I remember when I, my first bank account was a particular type of bank account with a large institution where the only kind of service I was allowed to get was automated teller. I couldn't go in and talk to a teller without a fee. That was a heck of a system. That was when it was, yeah, it was the new hotness. 
Uh, anyway, so the automated teller machine uh, have always been a big target for criminals. However, in the past, uh, hunting for ATMs usually included heavy tools such as, you know, cutting torches or, you know, tow, uh, tie chains. And like, you know, I've seen people like try to hook it to the back of a pickup and steal it and so on uh, or explosives. Right. Because basically sure. it's a miniature vault full of money that mm-hmm. has the ability to dispense it. However, with the dawn of the digital age, everything has changed. Nowadays, culprits can just jackpot an ATM without needing any movie special effects. Right. <laughs> uh, so, to summarize, you know, the seven reasons why ATMs can be jackpotted like this. Uh, number one is that ATMs are basically just a computer, mm-hmm. right? It actually has a PC inside of it. Yeah, sometimes uh, some a really of them, old like, one. Literally, it's, it's like a Dell stuffed in the, the console. Yeah, literally. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so reason number one is because it's just a regular PC. And number two is that that PC is likely running an old operating system. For example, a study done in early 2014 found that 95% of all ATMs were running Windows XP. Oh, uh, now, did which you say, was did you say, life at about that time. Did you say, uh, Alan, did you say 95%? <laughs> In 2014. Okay. At the beginning of 2014, 95%. I'm sure okay. it's slightly lower now, but I bet it's still over 50%. Yeah. If it was 95% uh, in 2014. Yeah. And and that was when in April of 2014, so maybe two months after this study or so, uh, Microsoft was killing off support. <laughs> so, you know, and I've honestly, I've seen some that's still running like Windows 98. Uh, not not in Canada, but uh, when I was in Bulgaria, the ticket machines for the subway were still running Windows 98. You know, it, to be honest with you, Alan, if somebody uh, f- sent us in a feedback and said, uh, our bank runs ATMs that have OS2 on them, I honestly wouldn't be that shocked by it. Nope. Oh, <laughs> that one might be more secure. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So number three, uh, the software other than the OS is also likely vulnerable. Uh, many of the ATMs still have the bundled version of Flash built into Internet Explorer that shipped with Windows XP, uh, which now, because that was like Flash 7 or whatever, uh, has 9,000 known vulnerabilities. No kidding. <laughs> Almost literally. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, that's the other thing. It's like, so you think about, uh, you know, the number of vulnerabilities might be in Windows XP after they stopped having support for it, but... When does when do you see the ATMs reboot to install the software updates when they did have support? No, and in fact, in a lot of cases, these ATMs aren't even on traditional networks where they could download an update or something like that. They're on like a right. specific ATM interface on a network, so yeah, they can't just but, like go get Windows updates. Mm-hmm. And more importantly, they probably don't bother pushing them. <laughs> well, no, yeah. Well, and I just as an aside too is it seems like if you could centrally manage ATMs. That would be another point of vulnerability, right? Yeah. So it's so a sort of double-edged sword there. Uh, so yeah, the software other than the OS can be a problem. Uh, number four, ATMs have no software integrity control. So this means, you know, I can go in and change the software if I have physical access to the computer inside the ATM. If I change some of the software, the ATM is perfectly happy to just keep working. Mm-hmm. It doesn't understand that the software is running now isn't the real software from the bank, right? They're not using signed code or anything like that. Right. And, you know, they don't have an antivirus solution. There's no authentication of the apps uh, or of the commands being sent to the cash dispenser. So once you take over the computer in there, you can just tell the cash dispenser to just spit out money. Whereas in a more software security focused setup, uh, only apps that were like signed by the bank's private key 
would be able to tell the cash dispenser to dispense money. Right. Yeah. Uh, yep. And number five is weak physical security for the PC part of the ATM. So while the deposit box for when people deposit money into the ATM and the cash dispenser are armored, right? So you need a cutting torch or explosives to get at the money. The PC part is usually just hidden behind the, a thin piece of plastic or maybe metal. Um, you know, the basic concept was, well, there's no money in that part of the ATM. So what are they going to do? Mm. Uh, well, it turns out what they're going to do is, you know, stick a USB <laughs> stick in there yeah. and take over the machine. Yeah, what they're going to, yeah, exactly. What they're going to do is exploit vulnerabilities on that machine. Yes. Um, so that was number six: was that the ATM control PCs have standard interfaces like mm. serial and USB, and those aren't secured, right? So you know, you don't. We're not saying that they should use a non, uh, some proprietary interface, uh, so that it'd be harder for criminals to connect to because, you know. The criminals are perfectly happy to build their own device to interface with it. It's more that, you know, the USB ports that stick on the front of this thing should probably, uh, you know, have the USB ports disabled or locked down or whatever so that you can't just stick a USB stick in one of the spare ports on this PC that you can reach by cutting a little hole in the plastic and then covering it up when you're done with the sticker, uh, which is how they've done it before when we covered it uh, from Krebs. Mm. So, yeah, uh, you know. It's pretty easy to just get at the PC in there and then make it do whatever you want. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden, you know, it's not doing what it's supposed to. And number seven is ATMs are increasingly directly connected to the internet. So while some uh, ATMs, like say the ones at a, uh, the branch of a bank, mm -hmm. are going to, you know, maybe be on a private network that goes into a VPN and, and you know, it's all segregated off from the internet. If you look at the, especially the private ATMs that you find in like convenience stores. Yes. They're just connected to the cable or DSL line at the store. Or on a MiFi or some of kind. Of yeah. Some kind. yeah. They're, so they're usually just connected to the internet and then they make an SSL connection back to the bank. Correct. I've noticed and let's this. let's not talk about what version of SSL that probably is. Yeah. Because <laughs> it's probably not TLS 1.2, I can tell you that. <laughs> um, but as more and more of these ATMs are directly connected to the internet, it means that you can then try to compromise them remotely. Uh, the researcher that wrote this uh, wrote the slides and everything for this said that uh, he found a bunch of ATMs on Shodan that he can reach from anywhere on the internet. Hmm. Although jackpotting an ATM that you're not standing in front of is a little bit less fun. <laughs> yeah, I suppose. But you know, if I went to a convenience, there is a convenience store nearby the studio. That ATM looks like it's about five years old. It has a little uh, cellular antenna sticking on the back of it. I've always noticed when people are using it that it like it. It is just sort of subject to the wireless network. I mean, like, I, if I could track that thing down online, I know exactly where it's at. I know it's super old. It, yep. So, I don't know, Alan. Exactly. It kind of reminds me of there was those, um, ah, they had these machines at grocery stores where you could dump all your change in and it would count it for you and then give you, uh, like, a coupon or gift sure, card yeah, yeah. value or whatever. Mm -hmm. But they would always, like, take part of the value. Yeah, yeah. Right? Like sure. they would take like a 10 or 15% fee mm -hmm, or something. Mm -hmm. But if you reached behind the machine and unplugged its internet connection, you could make it give you a, an iTunes gift card for the full value <laughs> That's or something. Awesome. That's a silly one. You know, and yeah. I, I wonder so this, this ATM I'm thinking of, um, I think it's running some sort of embedded OS. I mean, it must have like a computer right. board in there, but it's not like a full PC. So some of these things are like. Maybe that's better in some cases, and in some cases, I'm wondering. I think in some cases, it's probably better. Although in some it cases, makes it, it might be worse. Just upgrade the software. Yeah, 
Yeah, it's because standard PC, you, you know you can tell just by looking at the UI that it's pushing it as far as they can just to to, to work in that UI and it's you know obviously needs doesn't it's not very fast doesn't have enough, have enough memory doesn't Remember have the enough old CPU. Ones that had like the monochrome screens. Yeah, 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 and it's it like, makes what like these. that? I don't need the fancy animations. Yeah. I just want the button. I want yeah. stuff to pop up faster. No, now it's got like a now it has that like uh, it has like the Windows X Windows XP ding noise when you click stuff and it's just. It's a slow UI, and I could I could guarantee you they're not flashing it with new versions of the OS because that thing probably couldn't support anything newer. It's you know they're maxing it out. So I wonder sometimes if these ATMs with the embedded computers are any more or less safe than these ATMs with the full on like Windows. They're XP not running PCs. Windows. They're less vulnerable to the common stuff, right? Malware. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But that doesn't mean they're not vulnerable. It just means somebody has to target that one specifically. Whereas you know if a majority of them run Windows, then that gives you something. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Yeah, it's a common platform, which shouldn't be running Windows. Any other thoughts on this story? Uh, yep, just a couple here. Uh, I was saying, um, so ATMs are not very, replaced very often, like you saw, like that one of the store. Yeah. Especially the private ones, because you know usually the either the store is paying to rent it and somebody owns it, or worse, the store owns it, and mm-hmm. so you know they paid all this money and they gotta they make the money back by yeah. you know every time you take twenty dollars out, it actually takes twenty two dollars out of your account. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they make that two dollars. Well, you know, if that machine costs ten grand or something, it takes them quite a few transactions to make a profit off of it, and they're not going to want to replace it any sooner. Uh, however, you know, if you want a new ATM that's armored better, so the PC is protected and, and so on, and maybe doesn't have USB ports hanging out, then that's kind of, you know, that has you have to replace the ATM to get that basically. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, and so, and also, you know, when was the last time you saw an ATM down for software updates? Never. I think I've seen that once or twice for my bank, but that, you know, followed <sighs> by a new UI that I didn't like. Okay. You know what? That, that has happened at my banks too. Now they have user profiles at my bank. Oh, at really? the ATM. Yeah. I yeah. think mine does remember how much money I normally take out. So yeah. I can, you know, give me that much again. Yeah. So, but here's, <laughs> you think they would tie the user profile, uh, just the card. So when you get, put the card in, you still have to like engage like your profile mode. It doesn't just go to it, and it's just like I mean it's okay, it's all right, but it's just I I don't it's need like, a do custom- multiple people share the card. Normally you have separate cards. For I each don't person need to customize my ATM experience either. Just put no, the standard. Yeah. So yeah. yeah, they're getting fancier and fancier, and I don't always like the upgrades. Yeah. So the biggest one I says maybe if uh, criminals keep stealing large amounts of monies, the banks will eventually be interested in replacing the ATM. Yeah, that's Although, true. You know, that doesn't cover the private ATMs. Uh, but at some point, that's maybe a good you point. use anyway. you know, I, so I usually avoid them just because of the extra fee. You look, at, you look at what is the common point of vulnerability here, and it's uh, they use things like standard USB ports, uh, or they're connected directly to the internet for yep. management or deployment. And so in one regard, you look at these things and you go, oh, well, these common technologies made it possible for these devices to get created, developed, and sold and put out in the mass market for people to use. These common technologies made that a little more possible. It made developing this machine a little more accessible, so that's a positive. In the negative column, however, because these are common technologies, anybody that has a fairly good understanding of these technologies and knows how to exploit them can now go exploit those machines. So it's yep. it's one of those things where uh, the progress of technology has helped the advancement of everybody getting access to something and at the same time has left us more vulnerable because now we all share the same common knowledge. Yep. <laughs> there you go, ladies and gentlemen. There's a, a dichotomy for the ages for you. All right, Alan, any other thoughts on that story? Uh, no. All right, very good, very good. Then I'll share some thoughts on our first sponsor this week, and that 
is DigitalOcean. Check out DigitalOcean.com and use our promo code. Get ready, SnapOcean. One word, lowercase, SnapOcean gets you a $10 credit at DigitalOcean, where you can spin up a rig in less than 55 seconds and starting only $5 a month to get 512 megabytes of RAM, a 20 gigabyte SSD, a blazing fast CPU, and a terabyte of transfer. They have data centers in New York, San Francisco, Singapore, Amsterdam, London, Germany, and Toronto. I really like their mm-hmm. interface to get you up and going. So when you need to go deploy a system, it's not even worth really spinning up a VM on your machine anymore. The pricing so outrageously great. They have hourly pricing. It's like six cents an hour for a decent rig. So you can just do something for a few hours, especially when you use our promo code SnapOcean. And one of the things that I've really learned to love as I've been working with different systems is the snapshots. I was experimenting with a couple of different pieces of software. And the fact that they're just right there and so accessible, I love it. I love it. I, I want you. To, I also encourage you to check out some of their community documentation. They help you really take your server up to the next level. Like perhaps this one might be interesting to you: How to protect WordPress from the XML RPC attacks on Ubuntu 14.04. They have a bunch of good ones, including package management tutorials, firewall tutorials, all that kind of stuff you need to manage your machine properly. And on top of that, like if that's not enough, check this out. They have a bunch of really good open source code written around their straightforward API. So when their interface doesn't do it for you, they have a great API with lots of applications already written. You could go take advantage of those applications. I also really like the fact that they can make it super simple to get things like Discourse or Ghost or WordPress deployed in no time. Uh, I was doing a how-to segment for the Linux Action Show, and uh, I got... You know, we did like a we did like a 15-minute installation, and uh, I realized there's like a one-click install in DigitalOcean to get Discourse up and running, and uh, they they do it in like a way that even if you're a server expert, even if you've installed it a million times, like they do it in a very standardized, clean way. They go get uh, they just they don't like have like some sort of weird admin panel that you have to use to manage the software, and then once you set it up once with their admin panel, you can only use that panel to manage it. None of that kind of stuff. It's really clean. It's a good implementation. You should check it out. DigitalOcean.com also has free BSD servers, as well as just about every Linux distro you'd want to run. So go check them out. DigitalOcean.com. Use the promo code SNAPOcean. And when you deploy your rig, remember, using SNAPOcean supports the show and gets you a $10 credit. You can try something out. I got uh, Mumble up there. I got the sync thing, the BitTorrent sync. Own Cloud is up there. My Quasicore is running on there. All kinds of stuff. Uh, from time to time, we have an FTP server that we toss up there. All kinds of stuff. DigitalOcean.com. Use the promo code yep. SNAPOcean. Big thanks to DigitalOcean for sponsoring the TechSnap program. Alan, tell me about yep. the uh, the folks that uh, seem to have put or have found maybe a flaw in Fire. What are FireEye's big products that they sell, yes. if I'm understanding correctly? Yes. Uh, so the people at uh, Blue Frost Security, uh, which is a German, you know, security research company, uh, have developed a way to evade the dynamic analysis uh, engine of the FireEye suite of security appliances. Which, by the way, is kind of a big deal because after FireEye makes a big stink about something they found at the bottom of, of every you know big announcement is and FireEye cus FireEye customers are already having their server their systems updated to protect from this vulnerability. Right? This is sort of their yeah. big pitch. Yeah, uh, and you know, uh, so how it works? The FireEye application is like an appliance that sits on your network, and uh, you know, when new programs show up on your computer somewhere, like uh, you know, an email attachment or a new program, when a file shows up, they basically take the file, copy it to the appliance, and run it in a new virtual machine they just spun up, mm-hmm. and they watch it to see if it does anything malicious. Right, and then when they see it do something malicious, they like, aha, that's bad, and they'll block it. And basically, only once they watch a program and it doesn't do anything bad, 
does it go on the whitelist? And only things on the whitelist are allowed to be run in, on the computers in the network, right? So uh, if you remember back when we talked about, was it the, uh, the Australian version of the NSA released this big document on, you know, if you did just these five things, you would stop 80% of all attacks. Yeah, that sounds right. And one of them was software whitelisting, mm -hmm. right? So yes. if only the software on this list is allowed to be run on your computers, anything else will fail. Will just not be allowed to run. That can be problematic because then every time people try to do something, it gets blocked, and you know the users just whine endlessly. Yeah, and it becomes a, it comes the system administrator's nightmare because they're constantly yes. getting requests to whitelist applications, and I can't do mm -hmm. my job, and this is on a timeline, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Exactly. Uh, so the FireEye appliance is meant to mitigate that by basically trying the application out in a VM. And only if it doesn't do anything bad, letting it run on the network. So are these appliances then spinning up Windows, x86 yes, so VMs, and Linux VMs, and BSD VMs, and running these applications? I think mostly just Windows. I don't know uh, okay. uh, for sure. But yeah, so basically they That's just... That's a serious like, overhead. Uh, not necessarily, right? If you have the Windows VM already set up and you just clone it, and like, or like freeze it, right? And you start it up, copy the application, run it. Yeah. Watch it for a couple minutes, see if it did anything bad. If not, shut it down and program goes away. This is an amazing time we live in when a network appliance can do real time virtual machine spin up for application analysis. Like we can create virtual machines on the fly and analyze an application and then destroy them and then then program then go out there and say, Okay, you can or cannot run this application. I mean it's kind of a neat it's mm -hmm. a neat thing in theory. I can yeah. see how it sells. Yeah. Uh, and so that's the appliance. Uh, and, you know, if an application is found to be malicious, it gets blocked and, you know, only applications that don't do something bad get on the whitelist and are allowed to be run on all the computers in the network. Mm -hmm. uh, so the analysis engine evasion that was developed by these uh, researchers allows an attacker to completely bypass FireEye's virtualization-based dynamic analysis on Windows and add arbitrary binaries to the internal whitelist of binaries uh, for which the analysis has been skipped until the whitelist entry is wiped after a day. So basically, once uh, FireEye <laughs> runs on a binary and finds it not to be bad, it goes on a whitelist for a day hmm. so that it won't just sit there and scan the same file over and over sure. and over. That'd be a waste. Yeah. Um, but it does rescan them once a day in case, you know, new definitions or whatever. Hmm. Uh, so they have that. Uh, so the, uh, FireEye is employing the virtual, uh, virtual execution engine to perform dynamic, uh, dynamic analysis. In order to analyze a binary, it is first placed inside the virtual machine. Then a Windows batch script is then used to copy the binary to a temporary location within the virtual machine, renaming it from malware.exe to its original file name. Uh, no further sanitation of the original file name is uh, happens, which allows an attacker to use Windows environment variables inside the original file name, which are resolved inside the batch script. Hmm. <laughs> Just to say, this can easily lead to an invalid file name, letting the copy operation fail. So if you scroll down a little bit, you can see the example here. So instead, so if they call their original binary uh, foo percent temp percent bar. Okay. Yep. Dot exe. That's this right here. Then uh, the percent temp percent will be replaced by the Windows batch script with that variable, which you know is set to you know c colon slash user slash admin slash app data slash local slash temp hmm. or what. Hmm. Um, and so then when you see the copy command that it generates, yeah, uh, it then says well. That's not a valid path or directory. You can't do that. Yeah. <laughs> Syntax incorrect, zero files copy. Yeah. 
Um, and then, so the batch script continues and tries to execute the binary under its new name, which of course will fail because it doesn't exist because the copy didn't happen. Uh, afterwards, the behavioral analysis engine fires up uh, inside the virtual machine and starts watching uh, what the binary did. And, you know, it times out after so many minutes and it summarizes all the changes that the binary made to the machine and sees if there's anything malicious. Since the binary didn't run, it didn't change anything. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, okay, this one's good. Let it through. <laughs> uh, once the binary was analyzed and didn't show any malicious behavior, its MD5 hash is added to the internal list of binaries that mm. have already been analyzed. Mm. Uh, if a future binary, which is the uh, same MD5 hash in the list, is, uh, then the analysis will be skipped for that file and the MD5 hash will stay in the white list until it is wiped after a day. Uh, and so then you can you know, have the virus run. Uh, so the two problems I see with this are, I'm not sure why they changed the name as part of the copy. I guess it's so that they know, they can predict what the file's name is ah, when it arrives okay. in the VM or something. Okay. Um, but yes, it basically, you know, it's a classic shell thing of you have to escape stuff, right? You, get, you can yes. basically get the same thing in a, in a bash script if you have a dollar sign in the right. file name. Right. Or you can cause all kinds of fun by having spaces and file names with bash scripts. <clears throat> And, uh, of course, annoyingly, in Windows, there are two ways to escape things. Uh, the one is the caret character, you know, the little up arrow thing, uh, or triple quotes. So you have double quotes, right? If you put three double quotes in a row, yeah. that literally means one double quote or something like that. Hmm. It's, it's weird. Um, but anyway. <laughs> uh, so it seems fairly trivial uh, that, you know, it's basically the weak link in this whole dynamic analysis engine is the little batch script that copies yeah. the file. <laughs> it's amazing, actually. It's a complicated dynamic virtual machine spinning up analysis engine. <laughs> yeah, and then there's just, in there, there's just this little batch script that copies the file back to its original name. Um, although the obvious problem I see with this is you could make the malware like not activate unless it's named a certain thing or something, and that seems like... That would, but anyway... Um, yeah, that's some uh, interesting stuff they have going on there. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, of course, the other problem is, I think the, the reason they use ND5, I think, is because that's what the Windows Active Directory enforcement thing for the binary waitlist uses, and okay. so they might not have a choice. Okay. But otherwise, MD5 is a bad choice for that because with the uh, the birthday attack and so on, you could purposely set out to end up with two different EXE files that have the same MD5 hash, one which does nothing and one which does something bad. And then you send in the one that does nothing, get it whitelisted, and then run the one that's bad. And because the MD5 hash is the same, it'll be on the whitelist. Uh, you know, it's not entirely easy to do at the moment, but, you know, it gets easier every day as we get more computing power mm -hmm. to, to calculate two of these binaries that would be the same. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, just a summary of uh, interesting stuff about this one. Yeah. So the researchers originally reported this to FireEye on September 14th, and FireEye responded uh, like the next day or two days later or whatever. I think one of those days might have been a weekend. Um, and then they set up a call and talked to these researchers about it and got it all sorted. And then uh, on October 5th, they released an update for uh, some of their appliances, and then on the 15th for the, uh, most of the rest of them. And then on uh, October 31st, FireEye published their regular quarterly security advisory list. 
and it's got all the CVEs and so on. And they had this vulnerability listed there. Um, and I have a link here to the advisory. Uh, and then on January 14th, when this was supposed to be able to be disclosed, uh, FireEye asked the uh, researchers to delay for another 30 days before publishing hmm. because uh, not enough of their clients had installed the patch yet. Hmm. Which, which is basically the other indictment here is, you know, these companies go out and they spend all this money on this FireEye device and then they don't install the software updates on it for it to do any good. <laughs> yeah, I'm almost, I guess it makes sense on enterprise appliance, but it almost seems like, too, that uh, in 2015 and 16, a device like this might just get updates directly. Well, so uh, in the, at the bottom of that advisory, they actually say, you know, the best practice is definitely don't turn off the automatic updating oh, that we okay. built in. in <laughs> well, it sounds like phone. a lot of people have, which well, that yeah. seems pointless. Yeah, it's like, so we're going to pay all this money for this fancy security appliance, but then we don't want to install the updates. <laughs> You know what I like about this FireEye security advisory? Because they're pretty high-end, right, FireEye? I mean, they're a well-known name. Uh, you can see based on the title in the, in the, in the yes, toolbar, Microsoft every Word. PDF I get from somewhere, you can tell it's generated by Microsoft Word. 2015 Q4 Security Vulnerability Advisory Final dot doc X. Yes. <laughs> Looking I do pro wonder there, guys. if ones I've done in LibreOffice do the same thing or not. I don't think so. I think you can just go into the document properties and change it. I have it. gone into the document properties and changed it because I had, it was a doc that I had like copy and paste many times for the invoice and it had like the wrong year yeah. in the name or something. For some reason, knowing that this was just a template created in Microsoft Word, it feels yeah. less official for some reason. I don't know why. Yeah. Well, they seem to do these four times a year. <laughs> yeah, they do, don't they? Every quarter. Uh, so there you go. Yeah. Huh. I don't know what the takeaway is from that one, other than don't turn off automatic updates, I guess. Yes. And, uh, you know, be careful with your shell scripts. You, you, you know, That's the takeaway. But yeah. file names could have anything in the name. You can have a multi-thousand dollar product by a multi-million dollar company, and it can all just be brought down by a batch file. So... Keep that in mind. All right, you know what else you need to keep in mind? Ting. That's right, techsnap.ting.com. That's where you go to get a great deal on mobile. It's mobile that makes sense. They just charge for what you use. It's a flat $6 for the line, and then just your usage on top of that. Minutes, messages, megabytes. Uh, abandoner of the JB network and strander of your humble host, Rikai, is on the road right now. <laughs> like, I'm just laying into him. I just, and he, like, I goes away one time a year. Uh, so, you know, he's on... Well, you know, the... Uh, um, because he won't edit this episode, that means He'll that never know. Yeah, because he's traveling, right? He's never, I know, I know. I got, I got, I got full license here. Uh, so he's on the road. He's got the uh, Samsung S6. Guess what? Samsung S6 is a great Ting device. Talk about having a really nice fast phone that isn't actually hitched to an upstream carrier that delays the updates. So once Marshmallow starts rolling out, guess what? Rikai gets Marshmallow. That's one of the things I love about Ting is they don't have an agenda. They're okay with you just treating them like a dumb pipe or using them to call every single person you want. I'm really savvy with the Wi-Fi. So my bill every month for like three smartphone lines is usually around $30, $35. Average Ting per phone cost, $23 a month. That includes the $6 a month for the line. They have fanatical customer service. I got a tweet just over the weekend from Jed about how awesome Ting was about staying on the line. I've experienced that too, uh, where there was, a, there was a miscommunication in a used device that I picked up. And those things happen because people don't really understand what they're doing when they're selling just phones and 
mine was a MiFi. Uh, and so Ting just Ting gets on the phone. The customer service gets on the phone, stays with me while we call the other companies. Same story for Jed. It's just a really great customer service experience. And one of the nice things too is you can call them and just say, "All right, if you're busy, call me back." And then when they when they're ready, they'll call you, uh, which is nice because you can just go about and do your thing. They got all the great devices from feature phones that start around sixty bucks all the way up to the Cadillacs, like the Internet Phone Six S's or your Nexus Eyes or your. Galaxy S6s, and they've got a great control panel to manage all of it. Really superb. And I'm talking things like you can go in there and just turn a line off. You don't need a line or a MiFi device for a few months, turn it off. And then when you go travel, turn it on. And then just pay for when you use it. No contract, no determination fee. Are you getting how this makes mobile easier? Plus, CM CDMA and GSM networks to choose from. People love Ting, and your people. So go to techsnap.ting.com to save a little money and support this show. You can try out their savings calculator, see how much exactly you would save by putting in your usage. And while you're at the Ting site, go to techsnap.ting.com. Check out their blog. They are on fire. They are taking it to the cable networks. The hidden yep. costs of cable TV. They have a really great post. Just got some attention from The Verge. The Verge is loving it. They linked it up from their site today. Uh, they're going into all the different breakdowns. They're citing people like the LA Times. Uh, they talk about the Rokus. They even they even break. So if you go cord cutting, they're even breaking down like the power draw of the Roku. So you consider what you're going to actually pay when you go cord cutting. I mean, this is a serious article. So go check out. They got a couple of these at the Ting site. They really work hard mm -hmm. on this. TechSnap.Ting.com. Support the show. Visit their blog. Check out their devices and see how much you could save. And a big thank you to Ting for sponsoring the TechSnap program. When I was on the road. Having that MiFi device was super great, and now that Rikai's on the road, it's good to know he's taken care of, too. TechSnap.ting.com. Come back soon, Rikai. Okay, so there is a library that a lot of popular open-source projects rely on that has a flaw. And so, ergo, things like LibreOffice and Firefox have a bit of a problem because it's a flaw that sounds like if you're smart with fonts, could be fairly easy to exploit. What's going on, Alan? Mm -hmm. uh, so... Talos, which is the security arm of Cisco, uh, put out this advisory uh, a couple days ago. And they say uh, Talos has released an advisory for four vulnerabilities that is found in uh, LibGraphite, which is the library for uh, fonts. Um, it's used for font processing in uh, lots of stuff on Linux, uh, Firefox, OpenOffice, and pretty much any other major application that can support you know lots of different fonts and things oh, like that. Oh, boy. Yeah, it's uh, one of those typical problems of the uh, the monoculture in open source. It's for certain libraries like this one, where it's something that nobody wants to deal with, like fonts. There's really uh, usually only one or two good libraries, yeah, or and one good one and one not so good. Especially one. when it comes to, I mean, especially with fonts. Like this is a particular problem with fonts because people then there's like a whole matter of taste and preference that gets in there, and that even narrows it down some more. Yeah, uh, but there basically there aren't that many libraries that can do a lot of these fonts, and it's. You know, it's not one of the uh, exciting things to work on as a developer, necessarily. Uh, and so, you know, it's kind of a project that tends to get neglected a bit as well. And uh, But mostly it ends up that this library is used in almost everything that does stuff with fonts. <laughs> and that means hey a vulnerability in it affects everything. You know, like Firefox versions 11 through 42, etc. That also gives you an idea of the scope. Uh, that's a lot of different versions of Firefox. Yeah, it is. <laughs> that's um, a lot. The most severe uh, of the vulnerabilities results in an out-of-bounds read, which an attacker could uh, use to retrieve arbitrary... Uh, arbitrary code execution. Sure, yeah. So they could, you know, write some data to memory and then access it from the wrong place. Or, or 
they're allowed to write to memory that they shouldn't be able to. And then they could cause code to be run. Uh, the second vulnerability is an exploitable heap overflow, uh, which you could also use to do nasty things. Mm -hmm. And finally, there are two vulnerabilities that you could use just to cause a denial of service. Basically, if you try to open this document in LibreOffice, it can freeze LibreOffice. Or, you know, if you if I put if I tweet this out, everyone that looks at it on Twitter, their browser will freeze. <laughs> um, to exploit these vulnerabilities, an attacker simply needs to uh, the user to run a graphite-enabled application like Firefox that renders a page using a specially crafted font that triggers these vulnerabilities. So I have to be able to specify my own font. So I guess it wouldn't work on Twitter. But if I got you to go to my website where I you know loaded the custom font, then it would work. Uh, since Firefox versions 11 through 42 directly support Graphite, the attacker could easily compromise a server and then uh, serve the specially crafted font that when the user renders a page. So, yes, you know, target somebody else's website and infect it with this font, and then you could you know, hack everybody's computer that went to the site. Uh, Graphite is a package that can be used to create uh, smart fonts capable of displaying you know, writing systems with various complex behaviors. Uh, basically, Graphite's smart fonts are just true-type fonts with added extensions. Ah, but uh, you know, because they have those extensions to handle things like uh, writing systems that are right to left instead of left to right, and or you know, up and down instead. Uh, they're very popular as in big applications that have internationalization, so sure. that you can uh, use them in different countries and so on. Uh, an exploitable denial of service vulnerability exists in the font handling of Lyft Graphite. A specially crafted font could cause an out-of-bounds read, potentially resulting in information leakage or denial of service. Mm. A specially crafted font can cause a buffer overflow, resulting in potential code execution. <laughs> and an exploitable null pointer dereference exists in the bidirectional font handling. Uh, a specially crafted font could cause a null pointer dereference, resulting in a crash of the application. Huh. So yeah, every time I try to go to this website, my browser crashes. Uh, if a malicious font is provided with an arbitrary length buffer overflow, uh, then that can occur in the handling context and make quite a mess. Uh, the first uh, denial of service issue results from the null pointer dereference and the second from the out-of-bounds read. Uh, and so they list here, uh, libgraphite 2-1.2.4 is the, the vulnerable version. Uh, and that was used in all those versions of Firefox. Yeah. Uh, so make sure you patch. Uh, Firefox is already up to like 44 point something now. So as okay. long as you have that, you're okay. Uh, if you're using Firefox, the uh, extended support release, they released uh, 38.6.1, uh, which has the fixed version of LibGraphite. Mm. So essentially, we're probably going to see a trickle of a lot of different open source projects, or a lot of different projects that use this open source library, at least, yep. trickle out updates. So something they're going to have to keep an eye out for. And uh, what do you think, Alan? Server-side, is there much... Would there be much risk for servers? I mean, is there a lot of implementations of using libgraphite server-side for some sort of rendering? I don't know specifically, but uh, I definitely would expect it to be used maybe for generating PDF files. Oh, that's so well, if okay. you have yeah. a, a website that automatically generates, you know, billing PDFs or yeah. PDF yeah. reports sure. or uh, lots of things like that, then it could be. Very good. Uh, I don't know much about that library specifically. I, I don't think I have it on any of my servers. But well, I think the reason why it caught my attention uh, was it is a great example of an op of a, something that open source uses across the board in a lot of different places that uh, we don't 
we still don't really give a lot of thought to. Yep. Well, because the other thing is here, I imagine that in most cases, libgraphite isn't installed as a dependency of an application like Firefox, so much as it is bundled into Firefox. Right, yeah. Uh, and so then, then you can end up with like four different versions of it on your system without even knowing that it was there in the first place. Of course. You know. And the uh, entire project has to be updated to get that one update in. Right, but also, uh, you know, that means that just because you installed the newer Firefox that has its bundled version of LibreGraphite updated to not be vulnerable yeah. doesn't mean that, you know, your LibreOffice is actually upgraded yet. Exactly. That's exactly Whereas what it if means. They yeah. were, if it was an external dependency, it wouldn't have that problem. Right. Well, that's an old argument, but yeah. Uh, yeah, uh, and so that means yeah. everything's got to be updated, basically. But, but the biggest thing is... Um, you know, on, on FreeBSD, we have uh, our package manager has the audit command, which goes and gets mm. this database of known vulnerabilities in applications. Mm -hmm. And then it compares it to what you have installed and gives you a list of anything you have installed that has a known vulnerability. Sure. Works great, except for it doesn't know that libgraphite right. is built into Firefox. Right, that is. Because it's not a separate package that's dependency, because it's bundled in. And you can see why they chose and to bundle so, it. Yeah, in this case, we marked that version of Firefox as having that vulnerability, and so yeah, yeah. we do get the notification about it. But, you know, I wonder how many programs people are using that they don't even know have this library built into it. That's what, yeah, that's that's what I think of, too. And how could you ever keep track? Even, like, even once this thing gets known, it's not like you're going to, I mean, there's just, there's so many examples of this. There's so much software built on top of libraries like this. Uh, all right, well, any other thoughts on this story, even though it's, I mean, it's like, how do you, how do you really... The story doesn't have an end because libgraphite is just one example. But any other thoughts on this? Yeah, um, you know, uh, we're actually going to talk a little bit more about this type of thing in general in the roundup. Uh, but you know, it's there's a lot of libraries out there that people depend on that don't get much support mm -hmm. or love. You know, and we saw what happens with OpenSSL when that happens. Yeah, we did. But we, also, you know, we see the problem of the monoculture, right? If if yep. everybody uses this one program then if there's a problem with that one program, there's no alternative. Right. Uh, whereas, you know, if... That's why, uh, for example, uh, VeriSign, the company that runs the .com and .net top-level domains, not, mm -hmm. not Verizon, the phone company, VeriSign, <laughs> um, they purposely run their DNS servers, one-third Linux, one-third Solaris, and one-third FreeBSD, so that if there's a problem, it won't affect all three of them. But in the end, there's still, you know, OpenSSL is the same on all three. <laughs> That's true. Um, but, you know, at least they're making the effort there. Whereas, you know, a lot of people are perfectly happy to just, you know, have everything be the same. Uh, but They strive for that, you would say. Yeah. Uh, but sometimes it's actually a good thing to have half your stuff be one and half the other mm -hmm. or something. Mm -hmm. uh, so that it's not all taken out at once by the same common problem. That's very true. Now, the hardware you want to run those various operating systems on, why, friends, of course, that's IX Systems. Go to ixsystems.com slash techsnap. If that doesn't work, put a trailing slash on there. That's a pro tip. ixsystems.com slash techsnap, where they're going to build the ultimate system for whatever workload you might have. Yep. Now, I would invite you to check out some of their systems over there and see what might fit. They've got really good rigs built around the Intel processors from Atoms to Xeons. And I think, I don't know, I mean, I think for the last five years, these have been clear winners for server performance. And uh, I, have, uh, I have a story to share this weekend on the Linux Action Show, so I'll save it for that. But uh, I have a recent Intel uh, story that... You, the, 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 basically, the short of it is the thermal situation I wound up in, I never thought would have worked, and it's working just fine. But the long version of that is IX systems will build systems that are going to work great for you. Over the short term and long term, they do burn-in processes, in fact. 
I was reading a little bit on their blog about uh, smart OS and IX systems, and in here uh, they talk about. I think it was it uh, was it uh, Michael Dexter who wrote this. No, uh, I didn't catch the name of the person who wrote the blog nope. post, but. They talk in here, and this is a little insight into how IX systems work. They say that uh, we would ship every system with FreeBSD if we had it our way, but we do stress test every system with FreeBSD. And the truth is, we ship tens of thousands of systems each year that run other open source operating systems, including Illumos, GNU slash Linux, and OpenBSD. And I think that's something that uh, some of you might have wondered, is mm -hmm. what is their support level for uh, systems outside of FreeBSD? So uh, that kind of gives you an indication. You can read more on their blog. Uh, and I've heard that from them before as well, that they ship all kinds of systems. Now, FreeBSD, I think, is probably their favorite for a lot of good reasons. But they'll, yep. they'll happily ship you a system running uh, GNU Linux or Illumos or whatever you need. Uh, so check out that post over there about SmartOS on, on iX Systems. I've noticed they've put their blog front and center, too. So go to iXSystems.com slash TechSnap. That registers your vote of support for the TechSnap program. Keeps us on the air. And then when you go to their main page, they now have the bloggy link right there, front and center. Good for them, too, because mm -hmm. I think they have a really great blog. So I'm glad to see that. Uh, I'm glad to see that being an area that some of our sponsors are actually investing in more and more too. IXSystems.com. They build rigs. Alan, now they build rigs that Alan Jude gets to buy that make me super jealous. Yes. Now, I, I thought perhaps there was going to be some uh, some hardware demonstrations today on the show. Whatever happened with uh -huh. that new rig? Do you have it? What happened? Yeah. Alan? It's it's in the rack. It's already <laughs> in production, isn't it? Oh, uh, jelly. No. It's not in production right. yet. Okay, so tell me, are you happy? Uh, very happy with the hardware. Not happy with the software that doesn't want to work with it. Ah, that's good so it turns out uh, Linux and drivers. <laughs> oh, great! It's a it's a chance for Linux hate. It's a well, it's it's actually more hate on our software vendor, but mm. so for well, the people at actually, home, though, no, no, you're actually, trying to do some like, serious encoding stuff, right? Yes, but the and the problem is Intel. So Intel releases this uh, server media SDK that you can use to transcode video. Yeah, and their last release is from is the, the like 2015 R6. And it doesn't support Skylake. And uh, they're eventually going to support it, apparently. Now, Currently, Intel just you, released some code yesterday. Did you hear about that for, uh, for no. Skylake? For okay, Linux? I'll have to look at that. Yeah. So, like, the the i915 driver is updated in, like, the 4.4 the kernel. But the media SDK that Intel released currently only works with exactly CentOS 7.1. <laughs> or one Alan. version of uh, SLES. Oh, no. The, Oh the no, Susan one, uh, and so that's like kernel three point ten with some backports. Mm. Uh, so it just completely doesn't detect the the Skylake GPU at all. Yeah, boy. And uh, if you try to, I so I custom built a four point four kernel on it, and boot it, and it detects the driver. But then when you try to use the Intel software, it just pukes. Uh, is it called uh, QuickSync? Yes, QuickSync is the CPU feature. Uh, that I'm using. For they this. specifically released uh, some software for Ubuntu and others that does something with QuickSync and Skylake for Linux yesterday. I ah. noticed it while I was prepping for Linux it's, Unplugged. I, I don't think I have a link handy, but I did see that come across the radar. Well, I hope they didn't fix it yesterday because I don't feel really bad that on Tuesday I ordered four new machines with the <laughs> Haswell processor instead of the Skylake processor specifically because it wasn't going to work with Skylake. <laughs> You know, Al, there's no winning in the encoding game. There never is. Don't yeah. feel bad about it. It's always... It's but it would be nice to know how much faster, how many more streams I can transcode at once on a Skylake versus a Haswell. Yeah. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. So, hardware-wise, though, you're loving the rig. OS runs good, all of that on the new system. Yep. 
Okay. Yeah. Uh, um, oh, that was the other interesting thing. Uh, CentOS 7.1's kernel is so old that one of the four NICs isn't detected properly. Uh, the built-in, it's got two built-in 10 gig NICs that are like the new like X550 or whatever. And then it's got an I210 and then it's got the new Skylake I219 LM or whatever. Huh. And uh, FreeBSD only recently got support for oh, that. Oh, so yeah, Linux yeah. only recently got it as well, and so it's not in the old kernel 3.10. Uh, so I'm just kind of curious, like when you were specking out this machine, how much like forethought did you go give? And did you have to give additional forethought to cooling since this thing's going to be basically running all the time and coding software? The CPU is pretty much uh, going to be. Not really, like uh, it's a one new thing, and it's got like ten fans. <laughs> yeah, so it's already pretty good. Yeah, uh, you know, it's already designed to. To handle it. And, you know, it's just a built-in GPU. It's not like we're sticking a bunch of NVIDIA's in it or something. Right. Yeah, that's a good point. We do have a test machine of that going as well. Uh, but we rented that machine because those cards cost like $1,500 a piece. Yeah. 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 There you go. And, you and know it's what? mostly why we decided on the, uh, the Intel one because it worked better. Even if you're not building a crazy encoding rig like Alan, maybe you need something for storage or something for your network, any kind of work case, go check them out, ixsystems.com slash techsnap. And a big thank you to ixsystems for sponsoring the TechSnap program. So, Alan, I know, speaking of BSD, that there happened to be a brand new episode of BSD released just yesterday, episode 129, Synthesize All of the Things. An interview episode, I yes. believe. And, uh, with the uh, author of Synth a new package building tool for uh, Dragonfly and FreeBSD. Hence the name. Yes. Very good. Uh, so, you know, if you've ever heard us talk about Poudrier for building packages and thought that was too complicated, Synth is designed to be a drop-in replacement for things like Portmaster or Port Upgrade to upgrade your packages by building from source, hmm. but without having to go and, you know, build your own, uh, uh, build additional jails with different versions of the operating system in it and all the extra overhead there. It just uses chroot and allows you to work with the system you already have without having to download another copy of the operating system or Ooh, something. Yes. You know, Poudreur is designed for the package building in the FreeBSD cluster, like to build the official packages. And it works great at Scale Engine as well for us because we have to support four different versions of FreeBSD. But if you're just trying to update the software on your one web server, Synth is much lighter weight. And uh, because it's written in ADA, it's much, much faster. Hmm, cool. Sounds like a good interview, episode 129. Yes. Uh, we have uh, more and even more current stuff coming up about the Apple versus the FBI and unlocking the iPhone. Uh, we also covered some of that last night in episode 176 about the whole encryption backdoor, the passcode, entering 10 too many times. You've, you guys, I'm sure, have all been hearing about Apple's open letter, all of that. We recapped in episode 176 of the Unfilter Show. So a couple of great episodes for you to go download Right now, they'll finish up before the TechSnap program's done, and then you got great, great content ready to go, at least in my opinion. But with the news all done, that means it's time for the TechSnap feedback. Thanks for sending your emails to techsnap at jupiterbroadcasting.com or pop in that contact link at the top of the Jupiter Broadcasting website, or even better, starting a thread in our subreddit, techsnap.reddit.com. Now, Alan, we have an email here from Andrew. Uh, a, a question on booting on ZFS. Thanks for taking my question. You guys have taught me many lessons to count. Too many lessons to count. Much appreciated. I'm running a Proxmox server with four 160-gigabyte SSDs. I'm trying to understand how Grub boots with ZFS. Is Grub installed on a single disk or all of the disks? I have two mirrors in the pool, so I would hope that Grub is on two of the four drives. 
if it's on one disk, how do I prepare for a failure in that single disk? I wouldn't be able to boot anymore to recover my data or repair Grub. I guess I'd have to boot from a live CD and rebuild it. Any thoughts? Thanks. Uh, by default, so Grub isn't part of ZFS, right? It's not going to be installed on ZFS. It's going to be installed in the boot partition at the beginning of the disk, separate from ZFS. Uh, by default, it will be installed only to the one disk, probably. Uh, what I would recommend is manually installing it to all four. Mm. And you can verify that it's working by changing which device your computer boots off of in the BIOS. Yeah, yeah, and, and yeah. Also, uh, this is definitely something you should, uh, you know, I installed the boot code on every drive uh, on my uh, FreeBSD machine specifically so that when one drive dies and the BIOS randomly picks a different drive to boot off of, not necessarily just the next drive, yeah. all of them have the latest boot code. Yeah, uh, yeah, that's a good idea. I know on FreeNAS, they put a special boot code on the data-only disks that says stop booting from this disk and then have the right boot code on the boot disks hmm. to avoid other problems you can get from hmm. booting off the wrong disk. Uh, hmm. But yeah, if you're planning to boot off a set of disks, you should have the boot code installed on all of them. I would also say, not a bad exercise to practice if you have a spare machine. Don't do it on your main machine or even your backup machine, but you got a spare machine, it's not a bad practice to go into a live environment, find one that suits you, like System Rescue CD or your maybe the Proxmox one, whatever has the right environment for you, see what's comfortable, and learn how to do that. So that way, when that does happen, uh, uh, you're not, like, panicky. Yeah, Grub, Grub is too much magic for me. It's like, <laughs> yeah, I, I kind of, yeah, it, it can be. It can be very magical. Jenny. Yeah, whereas, you know, uh, for FreeBSD, it's like, gpart, boot code, you know, here's the partitioning boot code, here's the boot sector boot code, and there's where I want to put it, and it just... Puts it there and doesn't touch anything else. <laughs> That's my biggest concern with Grub is it doesn't ask me exactly where to put it. It kind of guesses or something. Oh, you got to just do, like, the, you gotta, you do the dance. You just got to do the dance. Yeah. And that's, that's all you, that's, it's a, it's so, a, so you weren't there. Because uh, you had gone I've heard to bed the stories. I've heard the but stories. But you saw maybe some of the videos of yes. Noah and I trying to get that Linux machine with six hard drives to yeah. boot off of the SSD or something. Yeah. <laughs> I remember. And and the Ubuntu installer insisted on just putting the boot code on the very first disk, not the one we told it the BIOS was going to boot off of. Right. Yeah. It just didn't care. Yeah. So it put the OS on one disk and the bootloader on another disk, and then the bootloader couldn't find the OS, and I was just like, oh, my God, I'm going to kill somebody. <laughs> let's see, uh, yeah. so let's see if we can help Jeremy. Let's see sadly, can... that's not, uh, Proxmox is not a thing I can help you with much. Anyway, uh, but okay. I think it's good advice. Uh, hi, Alan yes. and Chris. I have somewhat non-traditional question for the TechSnap show. At present, I currently have a wired home security system with a hardware from Concord built by General Electric. The other competitive mainline brand is Honeywell. Uh, as a home automation grows more popular, more people are tuning in their security systems as a central management point. I, so, so like many, I discussed options with my current security company toward enabling additional features like smart locks, mobile device management and other home automation solutions. GE and Honeywell don't play well together, and both are slow at adop uh, adapting to markets. Big surprise, he says. So as the security systems are growing in complexity and what they offer, there are more issues and more problems starting to appear. We recently saw the Comcast security system issue that is really more related to the underlying technology than really is Comcast. So are either of you aware of any good open source alternatives? To me, what is needed, and I've looked but haven't found anything, is a good central solution built on FreeBSD or Linux that has community updates and doesn't rely on Honeywell or GE software. These companies are just slow to adapt. You'd want something modular if possible, something similar to uh, an appliance, but doesn't have to be built on something like junk. And he says, I realize for the best security practices, one should run multiple wireless networks, for example, wireless home automation devices on a smart 
uh, on their own network, for example, or like your smart garage door opener, and then maybe your general machines on a different network. I personally run multiple wireless networks using Microtech devices, uh, and uh, he seems to like them. Any thoughts mm -hmm. on this problem? Thanks, Jeremy. Yeah. Hmm. The reason I didn't get the thermostat that can be managed from your phone is because of the way it connected to the network and the fact that I had like no control over it. And it's like, I don't want this random thing accessible from the internet, right? Because it basically creates a backwards tunnel out to the, uh, the company you get the thing from. So you right. buy the thermostat and because it's obviously, you know, it's going to be behind NAT on your router mm -hmm. in most people's houses. Mm -hmm. uh, it then connects out to the, uh, the company's website where it can then sit there and receive commands from yeah. your cell phone over the internet. Well, that's what drives me crazy right there is I have a, I have a hardware device on a LAN, on a Wi-Fi LAN in this case, a wireless LAN, and I yes, have another the, hardware device on a wireless LAN, and they could just simply talk to each other directly, and instead they're going out to a cloud service, which is always, which is, is always going to have some risk to it because there's always data metrics they could be observing. There could be vulnerabilities in their platform. They, there could be something wonky with their implementation. Like if Two I could, years from now, they could decide to shun it off. That's a huge one. That's a that's going to be a major problem with uh, Internet of Things home automation stuff. So for me, I really like something that I can talk to over yes, the over the over the for local me, network. If I'm wanting to control my thermostat, it's because I'm not at home. Yeah, it does right? need to be able to accommodate I, I want, that I want, too. You know, my phone to get alerts when the temperature of my house gets too low. Right. Because obviously the furnace isn't working. Right. I, I want my phone or, page when my alarm goes off when I'm not there. Because obviously I know when it's going off when I'm there. Yeah. yeah, and okay. you know, I want things like, I've just left the airport on my way home. I've been away for quite a while, so my thermostat was turned down. Yeah, begin the I warming process. I would like it to be warm when I get home. Yeah. Things like that. Uh, and so, yeah, it gets more complicated. Uh, Here's something he might want to like look at. I don't like any of the other people's software, uh, but I don't know of much. Like, I've seen a couple of open source ones for, like, yeah. lights. But yes. I, I, Me yeah. too. I'm beginning to look into, I haven't fully looked into it yet, OpenHab at openhab.org. Mm -hmm. uh, it's an it's a vendor and technology agnostic open source automation software for your home smart home. Uh, it's got flexibility scripts, does notification, time event event triggers. It can interact with a bunch of different types, so it's sort of like a common neutralizer between the different vendors' products. Uh, it can do its own historical graphs with RRD, uh, so it has a lot of nice technology around there that it can use to sort of manage and monitor these devices that they might not have built into them. And it's pretty it's pretty current. Uh, it's had an update as of February 1st. Uh, their new beta is out. And it looks really and nice. And they're working integration on... Integration with quite a bit of stuff. Yeah. Including, uh, asterisks, so you can have it do SMS or yes, phone sir. calls. Yes, sir. Yeah, they're working on a lot Report of that stuff. A call from your <laughs> thermostat would be pretty funny. Mm -hmm. So this might be something he could look into. Yeah, this uh, definitely looks like the nicest thing I've seen so far. Yeah, and and the idea, you know, they're kind of coming out with, well, not everybody's going to talk to everybody, so maybe we can sort of be that common piece. And it's open source. I like that, too. Okay, Oliver has, I think, probably a clarification he wants to bounce off you, Alan. He says, hi, guys. You talk a lot about bugs in OpenSSL. And since one of my key apps is using OpenSSL, I want to understand how these things are linked together. As far as I understand it, OpenSSL is providing crypto for OpenSSH. So I think he's asking if there's a flaw in OpenSSL, is there a flaw in OpenSSH? It Open depends. So, yes, OpenSSH uses parts of OpenSSL, although it depends on your operating system. You know, now that uh, LibreSSL is a thing, some of them use that. Or it's entirely possible now to compile OpenSSH that doesn't use any SSL libraries. 
Uh, but then the only encryption and key thing that's supported is the EDD25519 with the poly1305 and uh, a, a set of things that aren't that are op- available already implemented not in OpenSSL so they could just be built into OpenSSH. Mm. Um, but most of the time when there's vulnerabilities in OpenSSL, they have to do with parts of it that aren't going to be used by OpenSSH. Hmm. You know, usually a problem in OpenSSL isn't in the crypto primitives for like, you know, creating an encrypted connection, but in actually the socket management, memory management, and other yeah, bits true. of uh, OpenSSL that are more problematic. Good point. Okay. Matt writes in with our traditional PFSense question of the week. We start with a ZF. F- ZFS one, and we're ending on a PFSense question. He says, I'm a huge fan of PFSense, although, and I, this is interesting, and I'm not sure if I agree with him. He says, although I'm not sure it is as tested as rigorously as products from Cisco, Juniper, or Palo Alto. I'm beginning to trust it more than those commercial alternatives, though. Not only is it open, but I'm also convinced hackers will focus on targeting the platforms that the largest deep pocketed corporations tend to use. That's probably true. He says, there is one Cisco feature that hasn't appeared in PFSense that I'm desperate to get before migrating the rest of my Cisco boxes to PFSense. It's DM VPN, Dynamic Multipoint VPN, which allows a hub and spoke VPN setup where only the hub requires a static IP, and the rest of the spoke locations can have dynamic IPs, which can, can continue to change at their heart's content without requiring a change in the configs. That does sound pretty nice. Uh, he links us to Cisco's page on it. It's a PDF. Is there any good way to hack something together that would function this way in PFSense? Maybe it's already possible and I'm missing something. Uh, I should note that I don't want to have to rely on third parties for dynamic DNS and write dynamic DNS entries into all the configs. That's not really an acceptable solution. Thanks, Matt. I'm not sure I understand what DMVPN does. So there's like a central server and then all the other VPN servers are just randomly changing IP addresses? I think so, yeah. like So you could maybe have like a remote hub office with five end users at it that has right. one device that maybe the IP changes when they move around, but it can still establish a... When the a, connection resets, yeah. yeah. Um, I don't know. Seems like the easy solution for that is running your own dynamic DNS thing with like dynamic update with bind or something, but... Um, I don't know. You'd have to ask the, the PFSense people about that one. <laughs> Hmm. Uh, you know, if, what about buy, hmm? I? What about a d- totally different solution? Uh, and I don't know. This might not be appropriate. I'm just going to throw it out there. Uh, are you familiar with Tink? T i n c. Um, not really. Okay, it's uh, it's we talked a little bit about it, and I wasn't sure how how popular it was because it was being discussed quite a bit at scale, and so I thought maybe it was more common than than. So we've covered it on Linux Unplugged. It's a virtual private network daemon. And uh, it uses tunneling and encryption to create a secure private network between hosts on the internet. And they can be essentially at different IPs. And the VPN sites share information with each other over the internet. Without exposing any information to others, they create a secure tunnel between each other. But they can be at different dynamic points. Uh, automatic full mesh network routing. Regardless of how you set up Tink demons to connect to each other, the VPN traffic is always, if possible, sent directly to the destination. Easily expand your VPN when you want to add nodes to your VPN. All you have to do is add an extra configuration file. There's no need to start new daemons or create configure or new devices. You can bridge segments together. You can run it on FreeBSD, Linux, Mac OS, Windows 2000 up to Windows, well, probably 10. They, I think 8 is what they have listed on here. So this could be a solution, but it basically means not doing it at the firewall level as much. I don't know. 
I don't need my building yeah, on PFSense. Uh, Wes, co-host of Linux Unplugged, uses this quite a bit and uh, has had some successes with it. So you might check it out at tinc-vpn.org. Org. Okay, Alan. We had kind of like a little, hey, go patch your S uh, follow-up we wanted to do, too. It wasn't really quite a news story or a roundup item, but about this uh, glibc uh, uh, vulnerability that I think both Google yes. and Red Hat kind of found around the same time. Um, well, so according to Google, when they found it, uh, they did some poking around and found that the glibc maintainers had known about it since July of 2015, but hadn't patched it yet. Yes. I don't know if that right. was for that, a that reason was, or if it was really complicated or what. That was the uh, glibc maintainers, yeah. That yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. And then, yeah, so then uh, Google worked with Red Hat and uh, there's actually a fix now. Yeah. And so that was announced uh, two or three days ago now. Uh, and but, you should patch. Yeah, basically, if uh, a DNS packet is too big, it could uh, overflow the buffer and allow remote code execution. So in the nightmare scenario, somebody SSHing to your machine with their reverse DNS set to send a really big reply uh, that's maliciously set up uh, could cause uh, your machine to run their code. And basically, by making a single connection to your machine, they would take it over. Yeah, this is another one of those, like we were saying earlier in the show, there's certain things that a lot of code depends on that sits on top of, and this would be a, a good example. Yep. Uh, you know, just a few things. So, yeah, uh, go patch your S, as we always say on the show. You'll have patches coming to you soon. Okay, Alan. Well, guess what? That's all the feedback for this week. So if you have a question you want to send to the TechSnap program, go over to jupiterbroadcasting.com, click on the contact link, and choose TechSnap from the drop-down. Storage, networking, servers, performance, war stories from the field, anything like that is welcome into the show. TechSnap at jupiterbroadcasting.com if you want to email us directly. And with the email all done, it means it's time for the TechSnap Roundup. Welcome to the TechSnap Roundup. Yeah, that's that crazy music means how the Roundup stories that just didn't fit at the top of the show, but this will give you some links to follow up on your own after the show. Maybe a little extra reading material. And often these links came from our powerful subreddit at techsnap.reddit.com. Our, our first story. I don't mind it. <laughs> no, no. Uh, no, I think, I think most of mine, ex- with the exception of like a couple did. Uh, this one came from the subreddit, but I submitted it to the subreddit. Does that count? <laughs> <laughs> uh, so this is a post from Bruce Schneier over on the Washington Post. And he says, this is a post from him saying, why you should side with Apple and not the FBI in the Sam Bernardino iPhone case. He says, basically... I definitely agree with that. Uh, he says uh, that, that the really it's the policy implications long-term that is a big question here. That's the exactly. Big the, the whole point of the lawsuit is not uh, this particular case, but setting the precedent. Exactly. And that's his point, too. Uh, and uh, I think and, it's well put. you know, while it's good that Apple's doing that or whatever, don't get overly fanboyish with Apple, you know, they're just doing it for their own reasons. And also remember that if you have an iPhone 5, you're totally not protected at all. And um, this particular, uh, this, this particular case too, I think it's, I think it's really more about the passcode wiping than it is about encryption. I don't, I don't really, right. you know, so uh, yeah. Um, the passcode encryption, lots of phones have the passcode wipe after long, bad entries, right? So it's not just an iPhone. Yep. It could it could affect any Android device too, depending on the way this the way this precedent goes. Yep. Uh, all right, Alan. So tell me about this next story. I love the headline: Dis- distribution packages considered insecure. Boom! Right there yep. in your face. So yeah, it's uh, 
question is, you know, uh, you're sitting on your computer and you want to have FFmpeg, so you type apt-get install FFmpeg. Heck yeah, I do. And, yeah. Um, the dark side of this is that, you know, oftentimes the version in the, the repository is vulnerable uh, or old. Uh, and so he's like taking an example of PHP MyAdmin. Depending on the version of uh, Debian you're using, you can get all kinds of terrible old versions of it. Mm. And you can see here this big line of red uh, vulnerable. You can see, you know, if you're using Wheezy, Jesse, or Stretch, then the version of uh, um, PHP MyAdmin is vulnerable in almost all of these. Um, and, you know, he says that's just the tip of the iceberg. Some of them, there'll be unmaintained packages. Like there's a, a package called adminer. I don't know. I've never heard of it. Uh, the last upstream release from the actual people that make the software was February 6th. Uh, the last update in the Debian release, February 6th of 2012. Yeah. <laughs> Debian's particularly bad at this. Yeah. Uh, or, you know, CK Editor. Last update, February 4th. Last update in Debian, November 10th, 2014. Specifically, uh, yeah. I've I've talked to projects like the Own Cloud Project who say don't use the packages in the repos. Yeah. That's a bold statement, right? Uh, and there's different. I know, you know, uh, even for Puppet, they provide their own repos for each different operating system so that they can mm -hmm. ship the version that makes the right. So sense. there's there's some general ways people get around this, right? They do their own repo. Uh, that's pretty common. That's what Own Cloud or Discourse or Docker do, right? Uh, or there's Docker. You can distribute things, which is, which is a big reason why Docker's taken yeah, so much off on Linux is because of this Docker very problem. Docker is just putting the old versions in a right. container or having mm -hmm. multiple old versions? Yeah, right. or <laughs> Yes, exactly. But that's but I think one of the reasons it's taken off in popularity is because of this very problem. And then uh, the third way would be uh, something like Ubuntu. They're working on Snappy packages, which Snappy packages will actually pull from the upstream directly instead of from their repo in, in mm -hmm. some cases. So they're kind of there's a bunch of different solutions out there, but I, th I, t I also agree it's a big problem. And people think I'm joking when I say this, but I, I, one of the problems I have with enterprise distros is they essentially are a fork of Linux. They, they t snapshot everything on the entire stack in a point in time, and then they go off and they maintain that on their own for a while, while the rest of the world in open source moves on and continues to develop software, and this is what you get. This is the result you get. Because yeah. I, I just, <clears throat> I don't know, I feel like Linux, the, the way Linux is developed is, is so haphazard and aggressive that... You almost, in order to have a secure system, a functional system, the base almost has to be rolling, and it has to be a minimal base that's rolling, because otherwise, you almost immediately, within three months of an enterprise distro being released, this, this is a, this is, there's a dozen versions of this problem. Uh, right. Well, cause the other problem is, you know, <clears throat> I can see why enterprises want the CentOS, because, you know, if you install your web server and build your web application and deploy it, and then... All of a sudden, it's like, well, you know, it's a newer version of this library now, and none of your stuff works. <laughs> or, you know, uh, the biggest one is doing a package update. You, you do your package update so that you get the latest security fixes, and it also changes the version of PHP you're using out from underneath right, you, yep. breaking your web application. This is, I know, this is a big and, problem. Exactly. And so, I don't know if you how can do you get the right mix. And yeah. that's why, you know, FreeBSD takes one approach where you have a, a stable base system that gets security updates only, but no feature changes. And then separately, you have your application stack, which on Linux, this dichotomy doesn't really exist because so many applications come as part of the base system. Mm -hmm. um, but 
that's the, the, the packages you get are a rolling release. Uh, right. Like, literally updated continuously. Right. Um, which can be a downside. And so FreeBSD is experimenting with having a quarterly package release. So uh, once every three months, we take a snapshot and we're like, here, you can have this version of all these applications and the only updates to this package repo will be security updates. I think this is... We're uh, going to have to get to something like this. We're going to... But the, the problem there is how do you get enough volunteers to keep all those packages up to date? And, you know... Yeah, they, uh, there's a whole class of packages where that would be an issue. Because also, you're, you're, not, you're not Red Hat where you're actually backporting security fixes into the old version. You're just only right. bumping the version if you have to. And, right. and it's like sometimes upstream is not cooperating. They're like, yep. well, we're not patching the old version. We're only releasing the new version. Uh, and so it, some of it's up to upstream as well. But if upstream is a small project with only so many people, yeah. they're only worried about the latest version. They can't spend all the time supporting the old one either. I feel like there's four or five different solutions out there that people are trying or building right now to solve these problems. But we've sort of, in yeah. the meantime, deployed a whole bunch of systems that have this issue. Yeah. Uh, Speaking of Google and Red Hat working together, here's another story about Google and Red Hat Kumbaya. Uh, they're announcing a cloud-based scalable file server. Uh, so it's, it's using, uh, an, I guess, I don't know if it's a fork or just a new version of GlusterFS uh, to allow you, if I'm understanding correctly, disk used for your Red Hat Gluster storage installation now can be provisioned on Google's storage as well. So you could work with Google Storage now as you would work with a standard Gluster file system, which makes it much more approachable. But I, I can only imagine about the cost. I haven't looked into the cost of this yet. Yeah, and biggest thing, I imagine it only works if you're working in the cloud data center because doing it from your own location would mean needing an internet pipe wide enough to send yeah, all yeah, the data. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But interesting to see them just going with a standard file system for it. That is, to, to me, that was the more interesting part of the story. All right, so what's this uh, crypt cryptology ePrint archive report here for uh, key extraction well, via low bandwidth? Oh, go ahead. Yeah, so it's a, a link to a PDF, basically. Okay. Yeah. So that, that, <laughs> I, I that, like that. that's a friendly landing page exactly, uh, for, for a, PDF. a PDF. That's nice. Uh, and it's uh, elliptic curve Diffie-Hellman key extraction via low bandwidth electromagnetic attacks on a PC. That's what she said. Or how to steal somebody's GPG key by observing their computer through a wall. <laughs> Ah, okay. Uh, by get, by uh, currently in the, the version of the attack that in described in this paper, um, by getting you to decrypt a known set of plain text, so I send you an encrypted message where I know what the message was, and by watching the ah. electromagnetic emanations from your computer while you're decrypting it, I can figure out your secret key. So this is this is probably something some intelligence agencies already know about, or would love to have, or would now now know about. <laughs> Or now huh. trying to hire this guy. So they conducted using a Lenovo 3000 N200 laptop, mm -hmm. which exhibit a particularly clear signal, they say. <laughs> wow. We focus on LibCrypt, mm -hmm. which is a popular cryptographic library. Hmm. Good find, Alan. Good find. Yeah. It's a good paper if you're interested. We've talked about Stuxnet before. Stuxnet, turns out, was just the beginning. Tip of the iceberg. Uh, this is at least according to a new documentary that's going out. They were, the whole thing was called Nitro Zeus, and it was going to be a massive contingent plan, including uh, plans for if the Iran nuke deal didn't go through. Uh, and it was going to target civilian infrastructure, government infrastructure. It was going to make Stux Stuxnet look like just a little baby. 
Um, so it's a good it's a good uh, tease for a documentary that's coming out very soon about Stuxnet. This is the time we now live in, Alan. This yep. is this is we now live in, a, in an era when things like Stuxnet get a documentary and get teases. Hmm. All right, this next story pisses me off. The IRS is warning that 400% flood in fishing and malware this year for this tax year alone. Oh. Yes. Well, you know, we've talked about all the refund fraud and stuff with Krebs last year tax season, but uh, do you expect it to be better this year? No, of course not. No, right. just uh, now there's even more criminals that are like, oh, I've heard this makes a lot of money, so I'm going to get in on this as well. So yeah. uh, watch out for phishing scams trying to have anything to do with the IRS. So I've heard yeah. a few, I've heard a little scuttlebutt about this hospital that was essentially like some of their machines are getting DDoSed and they had to turn away a, like an 80 year old lady who came to get service because their machines weren't working and they just continued to have problems. And uh, it's a hospital down in Hollywood. And after more than a week of these problems, they decided to shell out 40 bitcoins to the attacker or about $17,000 at the time. So that way they could get their network back. They say it was struck by ransomware on February 5th. Yeah, so apparently their computers were taken over with ransomware and Something they like hit the locker. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, putting my evil guy hat on, uh, if, if I'm evil, I take over your network and, I ransom, and you agree to pay the ransom or actually even do pay the ransom, I would be like, you kind of took too long. Uh, the ransom is now double. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, like if you, Bitcoin you fell me, while like, you were thinking about it, so I got to raise that. Uh, I got to bring yeah. it up. <laughs> like, uh, yeah, the, since you've demonstrated a willingness to pay me money, uh, I would like some more, please. Yeah, that's the thing, right? Is what what prevents them from coming back and um, hey, remember those vulnerabilities that you never fix that I know how to exploit for money? Um, gonna need more money. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. All right. Well, if you have a lot of free time and feel like spending. A lot of it swiping your phone. I got a real bad idea for you. Change the date on your iPhone back to January 1st, 1970, and uh, you could permanently brick the 64-bit iOS device. Although, I guess if you let the battery die all the way, uh, that is the solution. It and then it's okay. You okay. Have, but you have to go back into the OS and change the date. Otherwise, I guess it runs dog slow. This is the phone. It just runs like super slow. It's really weird. Right. So uh, I bet you probably know the backstory, what's causing this. You can probably guess. Well, it's because uh, Unix time is stored as the exactly. difference between now and yeah. uh, January 1st, 1970. So okay. I'm not sure why May is a special number. Huh, uh, yeah. I'm guessing just uh, it's the floor of the number of seconds before it's so many digits or something. Yeah. Uh, and I'm guessing there's code in there where if the, if the time is really small, it thinks it's uh, a difference or something, not the actual time, and it gets confused. Basically, I'm, I'm guessing Apple overloaded it to mean a different thing in a certain context. Uh, yeah. But the uh, the fun idea with this one is, uh, so you go with some, some, say, the Starbucks with the public Wi-Fi, and you set up a nice NTP server. Or some mom-and-pop coffee shop that maybe doesn't even yes. have Wi-Fi, and you bring the Wi-Fi. <laughs> yeah, so you bring the Wi-Fi where the DHCP server mentions your NTP server, and all the iPhones will dutifully sync their time with that NTP server, which will now tell them it's all 1970. Yeah. Boop, 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 and boop, then boop, boop, boop. you just watch all the hipsters' phones lock up. Yeah, that would be that would be a particularly good one. Uh, yeah. Or you know, if you had access to a corporate network's NTP server, you could screw up all the yep. iPhones on the network there too. Yeah, I mean, uh, you probably mess up yep. a few other things too. <laughs> Most NTP clients will refuse to change uh, that much at once. That's true. But on a phone, or on a device where you don't have an internal clock like a, a desktop does, you don't really have a choice, right? Like uh, on something like a Raspberry Pi that doesn't have. Uh, the uh, real-time clock, it just has to learn the date every time it boots up. Mm -hmm. 
And so it, it doesn't have that protection. Yeah. Uh, this is where something like uh, the guys, uh, OpenNTPD, the client uh, in that comes from OpenBSD, they built in an option so that when you get the time back from the time server, you can make an HTTPS connection out to a random website like Google or Yahoo or just anybody you trust, any website that you can reach that you can trust. Uh, and it checks the date timestamp in the HTTP uh, request, response from the server and make sure the time the time server told you is within like five seconds of that. And if it's not, it's like that time server is probably lying. Hmm. Uh, as, as basically just is you're not actually syncing your time with the web server. You're just validating the time you're getting. It's basically a sanity check. Uh, and something like that would definitely avoid something like trying to skew your time back to 1970. I find and it, it seems like a, a would be a good mitigation for the iPhones to have. I find it interesting that it doesn't affect the 32-bit uh, iOS devices. It's only 64-bit iOS devices. So perhaps That's a good it's, point. I wonder if it causes something to wrap to a negative number or something. Yeah. <laughs> I bet they'll have a patch out pretty soon, I think. Yeah. So the other thing, the other sort of anecdotal interesting thing about this story was, uh, you know, it spread so freaking fast online that the stores, the support people at the stores were sort of in denial for a little bit. They're like, oh, that's not a problem. No. And then Apple had to, like, urgently get the word out to all the stores that this is a problem, disconnect the battery or let it drain, and then set the day back is how you solve it. Like, there was this... Really fast response, but it still wasn't as fast as the speed of the way things spread over the internet. So people were rushing into into the Apple stores, and all of a sudden they had these problems, yes. and they're like, "What are you? What is going on?" So it was just interesting well, to watch from that some standpoint. Some of the things I've seen on Facebook, where it was like, you know, if your phone gets wet, put it in the microwave or something. You just see <laughs> that somebody shows up with like this mutilated phone. Yes, it's like you fell for that. What are you doing? Yeah, uh, cool. And doing something like that and convincing lots of people is like you set this back on your iPhone and. Something magic will happen, and watching a bunch of people break their iPhones and cry about. Oh, yeah, there's also the the uh, the, uh, the the old water resistant prank, and yeah, there's been yes. a few of them. Okay, so do you remember back in our Bitcoin Blaster days, way back in the show? No, I don't really either. I can't remember if it actually made into the show or not, but I'm sure we might have talked about it. I got one of those Butterfly Labs ASIC miners. Do you mm -hmm. remember that? I pre-ordered one of those things, okay. and uh, I got it like a year after I was supposed to get it. This is the story of my life now. And so uh, the guys over at uh, Butterfly Labs, well, not only are they kind of MIA, but they're, they're getting in a lot of trouble with the FTC. Uh, on Thursday, they struck a deal with the Federal Trade Commission in a lawsuit that's dragged on since September 2014. The FTC wants $38 million out of these guys, $38.6 million, uh, but of course, they don't have it. In fact, they really don't even have $15,000 to their name. In fact, they haven't been able to do refunds. They've had to suspend doing refunds now. Um, they say, as of this writing, the Butterfly Labs website is still online, and it still appears to be taking orders. However, they have a statement on the site dated January 18th saying the company has insufficient funds to pay out all refund requests at the present time. So that's sort of, I think, the end of the story for Butterfly Labs, pretty much. They're going to shut mm -hmm. down. Whatever money's going to be left, they'll pay in fines, go for bankruptcy. Yeah, you know the problem yep. was that they couldn't get it to market in, t in the time it took them to get it to market. They weren't honest, and that time uh, the Bitcoin difficulty went up so much that the devices became less relevant. When they did ship, you could still make some money, but it wasn't nearly what it was going to be when, to, when you to, made the investment. Exactly, and you know we see this with the Kickstarter type campaigns a lot. 
people that haven't built hardware before not understanding how much complexity there is in building it and how long it's going to take. From, from you know, Bitcoin miners to laptops, I've been burned by that one. Yep. Uh, well, even just, you know, even these little you know, mega things ended up taking longer. Yeah, and, we both got uh, that too, yeah. They, like, you know, they, they ship pretty much on time other than a couple of issues. Although at one point when they were talking about they show the guy like manually filling up people's addresses on the labels. It's like, how did you think that was going to work? Yeah. Um, they figured something out for that. But um, then they got hit with the battery. So they sold these battery docks. So you could have one of these that was didn't have to have a power source. Mm, cool. And then they found out too late that after uh, above a certain size, you can't ship uh, lithium batteries on an airplane. Although um, I think part of that might have been regulations changing after that Malaysian Airlines flight or whatever. Okay. Um, and so it's like, well, it would take five months to ship them to the U.S. in a container ship as opposed to on a plane. Yeah. And how do we sort this out? And can we just make the battery smaller so we can put it on a plane? <laughs> That's the kind of stuff you just run into that, you know. You don't yeah. And, uh, you know, you got to be careful when you're giving people these estimated times. You can't just, oh, well, it's just three months. That'll be lots. Mm -hmm. It's like, no, that's not how that works. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. All right. One more Bitcoin story in the roundup. Approximate hardware yeah. designs and bigger Bitcoin mining profits. What's this? Yes. So uh, this is uh, from a uh, university in the U.S., uh, Urbana Champlain or whatever. Uh, and they found that you can get a about 30% more Bitcoins out of your Bitcoin mining if you just allow errors. Okay. I heard, I heard something a little bit about that. That sounded crazy to me. Like, why would you want to allow errors? Well, basically, because this time you spend confirmed? checking, well, yeah, well, the, yeah. So you can just allow the errors and have it be rejected by the blockchain and end up not getting the coins. But the time you spend checking and verifying that it was right the first time before you submit it means that you could have been working on a, a second block of coins by that. This sounds like something that a mining a mining group could tweak their miner overnight and start taking advantage of this. Yeah. Uh, although the, one of the questions becomes, you know, what does this mean for the network when all of a sudden a lot more of these invalid ones get posted? If enough something got posted in a row, you would actually end up with a fork of the blockchain that was all wrong, uh, but it's longer than the right one because oh, they're going true. faster. Yeah, and you're going to add. It's going to add to the size of the blockchain too. Although, but it's going to it's going to keep getting reset when it's like, oh well, the the second block in your six block string here is wrong, so all the, everything after that is is garbage. Ugh. Uh, so it depends on how long the confirmations take and so on. Yeah. But, huh. uh, interesting article. If you're still interested in Bitcoin, check it out. Yeah, really. All right. So what do we know about this guy who's one of the first guys on Obama's NSA advisory board? Well, What's well he's stuff? had the NSA advisory board for a while, but this is the first person that actually knows anything about encryption and so on. An actual tech expert on the uh, president's right, NSA so the advisory first, board. They say the headline is the first ever tech expert on yes. the NSA advisory board. Yes, so it's uh, Steve Velovin, who's the co-director of uh, Columbia's Cybersecurity and Privacy Center and the author of uh, papers like Keys Under the Doormat, which is a spectacular broadside against the government's uh, demands for backdoor encryption. Uh, so it's actually somebody who's kind of on you know our side of it uh, being on this mm. uh, panel and hopefully, mm. uh, you know, he's kind of, uh, he was one of the original people that created Usenet. You know, all right, uh, all right. He invented the encrypted key exchange, password authenticated key agreement, and a bunch of other important things. Hmm. So, uh, hate to be Ringo Starr right now. Hackers have broken into Ringo Starr's Twitter account with a scary, simple method. 
Yeah. So it turns out, uh, apparently, Ringo Starr's Twitter account isn't actually run by Ringo Starr. As surprise. You surprise, surprise. Uh, but is run by the digital marketing manager for the record label. And apparently, the hacker uh, broke into that guy's email address. So what I'm really wondering is how he didn't end up... Uh, I'm guessing that guy probably had, like, 50 celebrities' Twitter mm. accounts. Mm-hmm. And how did he not end up taking... Maybe Ringo's the, the only good one. <laughs> <laughs> it's just entirely possible. Uh, but yeah, so, you know, if you take over somebody's email account, you automatically have the ability to take over, you know, every account tied to that email, like we've been saying forever. That's very true. Speaking of Twitter, we got a tweet in the roundup uh, from at uh, BartBlaze. Oh, what's this, Alan? What's this? Uh, this is a CryptoLocker-like malware that has a valid digital certificate for the binary. Uh. So when you... when the virus runs on your computer it actually says you know this is from a trusted manufacturer mm, so you're not getting like the prompts that you might get otherwise yeah of course the manufacturer is like some chinese company you've never heard of does it say the name there uh it might in the paste bin yeah the paste bin has it um i'll pull it up right now my U technology or my U network technology company Eesh. yeah m-i and then why are you? Yeah. So it's, I'm guessing they managed to steal the uh, the um, private crypto key. Yeah. So basically by uh, um, hacking the computers at that company, they managed to get the private key for their code signing certificate and then use that to sign the malware. It's hmm. happened before. But, you know, it's an extra risk because, you know, if you're saying only allow signed apps on our network, then it can be a problem. Well, then guess what? People are going to try to get signed apps. <laughs> That's what happens next. All right. We love it when this happens. Backblaze is here with another Thanks. hardware reliability review, and this one's for last year. Yeah, so this is uh, the, the quarter ending 2015 Q4. Uh, so they said at the end of 2015, Blackbase Data Center has 56,224 spinning hard drives uh, containing mm-hmm. customer data. Uh, these hard drives reside in uh, 1,250 separate pods, uh, and they say, by comparison, they began 2015 with only 39,000 drives. Wow. So that's quite a few yeah. uh, pods. Look at them. Uh, they say they added 65 petabytes of storage in 2015, uh, or give or take a couple petabytes. <laughs> uh, but they have uh, breakdown of statistics on different hard drives and how they fared. Uh, so looking at the uh, Hitachi HDST uh, two terabyte drives, they had about uh, 4,500 of those, uh, although almost all of them are getting... Uh, Oh, to be about five years old now because they're two terabyte drives. Mm-hmm. And they've seen a failure rate of 1.55% uh, between Q2 of 2013 and Q4 of 2015. And then the three terabyte drives, they have uh, 4,500 of those, and they're about 43 months old, and they have a nice low 0.84 failure rate and so on. Uh, and then they're looking at the, uh, for the four terabytes, they have across three different models, uh, about 12,000 of the drives, hmm. and again, 0.8, 0.4, and 1.0 uh, failure rate, looking quite nice. Although they have 45 of the 8-terabyte drives, uh, which are on average 10 months old now, and they have a 4.9% failure rate. Uh, so that's much higher. Uh, then they look at the Seagates. They got uh, the Seagate 4-terabyte drive. They have 29,000 of that model that are on average uh, 12 months old and they've got a failure rate of about uh, 2.9%. Although a slightly different model of that, they only have a couple hundred but 2.19. Hmm. And then the uh, the new Seagate 6 terabyte drives, 
they have uh, just shy of 2,000 of those with a 1.89% failure rate. And then they have some Toshibas with uh, the 2.6 to 3.8% failure rate and a series of Western Digital Drives, uh, including they have some two terabyte drives that are only eight months old. That's a little mm. weird. But those have a 10% failure rate. Hmm. Uh, and then the three terabyte drives are 7% failure rate and the four terabytes are 2.4 and the six are 5.8% failure rate. Uh, so they break down the drives that they've retired. Uh, by the end of 2015, they didn't have any of the Seagate two and three terabyte drives left. Uh, specifically, they mentioned the, uh, the old 1.5 terabyte drives with a really high failure rate. And uh, they somehow still have bad experience with the three terabyte Seagates. Uh, I've not had that problem, but I think those might have been some of the ones where they were shucking them out of the uh, enclosures. Oh, yeah, yep, yep, yep. We, suggest, uh, we assume that caused uh, part of the problem. I'd like to see some other people's numbers on maybe those same drives to see how they compare. Uh, but they also noted the reason why even after that bad experience, they continue to buy Seagate drives. As you can see, you know, they have 30,000 Seagate drives yeah, where, they do. Uh, of the one model. Uh, they found the smart error reporting on the Seagates actually, you know, when it says something's going wrong, uh, or when a drive dies, they saw almost every time that the smart warned mm. them ahead of time. Uh, and that's, you know, so they can plan for it. For them. Yeah. Okay. okay. So they say, uh, looking at it, uh, this is a good a point to review how we compute our drive failure rates. And they actually have all the details on how they do it uh, so that you can see what the annualized failure rate numbers actually mean. Then they have a nice table where they break down the failures by manufacturer and see that, you know, HDST uh, drives were best, but the Seagate drives and the uh, Toshibas were about par and the Western Digital drives uh, weren't doing so well. And then they show uh, the breakdown of how they make up the drives and you see that they've uh, shifted the drive count by manufacturers now 56% Seagate and 41% HGST and a little bit everything else. Uh, but then looking at the, how long the drives last, uh, the HGST drives last a bit longer. Hmm. And they also note below about experimenting with 8-terabyte helium drives. Yes. Which is kind of interesting. They say they've had pretty reasonable. Uh, here's, here's the big one. When they looked at the, the when they bought the drives, mm -hmm. uh, the Seagate 3-terabyte drives, the failure rates uh, seem to have changed depending on when they bought them. Uh, it'd be interesting if they had those broken down by... Seagate has two different factories. Uh, oh, yeah. One in the Philippines and one in China, I think. And uh, obviously, the one was affected by that flood. And that's when I, they opened the second one. And I wonder if either the second plant that was set up in a hurry makes more defective drives, or if the plant that was brought back online after the flood now makes defective drives. But before the flood, the drives uh, were much better hmm. of that particular model. Hmm. Good. I like that they post these. I wish they would write a... Uh uh, some better server-side software for people that want to try it for server backups. Yep. But yeah. Uh, then they also they broke down their uh, drive failure rates by manufacturer only looking at four terabyte drives, mm. and the numbers uh, you know are much nicer there. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, yeah. And they talk here about the um, smart status stuff, 
you know, a, a relevant observation for our operations teams on the Seagate drives is that generally signal their impending failure via their smart stats. Since we monitor several smart stats, we have often warned of trouble before pending failure and can take appropriate action. Drive failures from the other manufacturers appear to be less predictable. Hmm. Looking at the six terabyte drives, uh, of which they added about 2,400, uh, 1,800 Seagate and 500 Western Digital, uh, looking at only Q4 of 2014, the Seagates had a failure rate of uh, 0.85 and the Western Digital's a failure rate of 7%. Hmm. Uh, so in general, they've definitely, for the six terabyte drives, they found the Western Digital's to be more problematic than the Seagates. Hmm. Seems to be kind of a common occurrence. Yep. All right, Alan, any other thoughts on that? I would love to know if they, I'd love to have them to have more stats on their uh, five terabyte Toshiba drives mm. since I bought 50 of those. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but they only have 45 of them. So I actually have more of those Seagate, uh, <laughs> those uh, Toshiba five terabyte That's drives true. than they do. Uh, and the Helium drives, mine are six terabyte, not the eight terabyte. But I have 36 of those as well. Ooh, Alan, Alan, Alan. All right, that brings us to the end of this week's episode of the TechSnap program. If you want to contribute to the roundup content or other parts of the show, techsnap.reddit.com, or even better, email us, techsnap at jupiterbroadcasting.com. Or, I got, this is a brand new idea. Never thought of this before. Join us live. I know, it's crazy. Join us live over jblive.tv. We do this show at 1 p.m. Pacific, which is? 4 p.m. Eastern, 2100 UTC. Boom. Get also, follow up on the Backblaze thing. Yeah. They have their data downloadable now. So you can get the raw data from 2013, 2014, oh. 15, and you can download it and do your own science on it. Somebody, I'm very glad to see that. Somebody should share if they do. Uh, also, check out uh, the, uh, the RSS feeds to grab the show weekly. And, uh, of course, as always, don't forget that if you can't join us live, you could always download the show. Always. I mean... It's not just live. I, this week, am the person that has to edit, encode it, and publish it. So maybe just for me, even if you streamed it live, go download as well. Because I worked on that, hard on that. Something like that. Okay, Alan, is there anything else we want to cover before we get out of here? Uh, nope. Okay. All right, everybody. Well, thank you so much for tuning in this week's episode of TechSnap. And we'll see you right back here next week. 